everybody, it's Kai. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Corner Office Podcast. It is, of course, our series where I talk to the people running some of the biggest and most influential companies in the global economy. Today, though, something a little bit different. I'm talking to three people, all in different parts of the country, running businesses that play key roles in their local economies and who are also essentially the CEOs of those businesses that they run. I met these three through a series we have been doing on Marketplace called the United States of Work. We are reimagining the American labor force, all 164 million people in it, as 10 real actual people who could talk to us. How we chose them and why is at marketplace.org slash work. But here on the podcast, you are going to hear from the director of an independent movie theater, a small town doctor, and a hairstylist. They are the ones making this economy work. But the question is, is this economy working for them? This is the United States of work. There's always things that you don't like about your job. You work hard for what you want. You know, every job has their ups and downs. Whatever good job means. I like the hustle. I like working fast. That's not a career. It's a lifestyle. Our first stop, Nashville, Tennessee. The Belcourt Theater, an independent movie house. I mean, the movies don't start for a while. Run as a nonprofit. Oh, so this is a projection booth. Stephanie Silverman is in charge. We're in the middle of a noir festival right now. That's her. It's real movies on real film. Stephanie is 49, the executive director, which puts her in a slice of the labor force that the Bureau of Labor Statistics calls management, professional, and related occupations. Four out of ten of us are in that slice. It includes CEOs and scientists, dentists, architects, a bunch of other professionals as well. Question one for this manager was how she came to be running the Belcourt. Well, it was a, a slightly circuitous route, but, you know, I, I, uh, I was a kid who loved the arts. I had a mom who was a musician in an orchestra, so I played the violin and then kind of realized that as much as I loved all this, um, I wasn't the most amazing violinist <laughs> and out of college really started working for some smaller arts nonprofits, but mostly in the contemporary dance world uh, for a long time. And so though I had no background in the movie business at all, when I moved to Nashville, um, where my husband was, he's a musician, so Nashville, of course. Of course. Um, it, this job came open and well, I didn't really know much about exhibiting movies. I did know a good amount about building audience for challenging, um, interesting work. Hmm. And that seemed to be a solid enough through line. And so uh, here I am now, 13 years later. So that gets me to my next question, which is, uh, I'm going to make a very rough comparison here, right? The executive director is, is in essence, the CEO, right? And you're, you're flying above Definitely. this, right? So yep. what... <clears throat> What are the bigger economic issues on your mind besides programming the movie house? Well, you know, as always, um, it's it it certainly is things like oh, you know, people's available income. Mm -hmm. You know, I think right now, and and I it's partially because of the city that we live in. Nashville is experiencing unbelievable growth. I mean, that's been. Wonderful on one hand because it's it's allowed for the growth of the Bell Court and for our success and for our great growing audience numbers, but it then it comes with it all those adjacent challenges. Most importantly, I would say right now is affordable housing for the people who work at the theater. Nobody makes a million dollars working in an independent film house. 
And particularly for our front of house staff in a city like Nashville, they're mostly working artists. So they're just getting pushed further and further and further outside of the city. And I really worry that we're driving that community to the outskirts or to different cities, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to lose something that really is the heartbeat of this community that we all love. You know, it's interesting because you talk about the folks who work there as this is basically a, a, a side hustle for them, getting them, you know, steady income relating to their other, uh, most of them working arts jobs. And it occurs to me, you're married to a musician, and while Nashville is probably a great town for like studio musicians and and the rest, you're probably the breadwinner, right? Yeah, you know, it's I I guess it's a little bit like having a spouse in real estate or something, right? Where huh. where where years ebb and flow. So yeah. he's been a real working musician for his entire adult life. So he he's never had a side hustle, I guess, unless like teaching at a university is considered that. But you know, he is teaching violin, um, but. You know, it Wait, you're, his you're world a is much and more. You a violinist? Yeah, isn't that? But he's a good violinist, and <laughs> I am a bad violinist. Okay. So there's no competition left. Fair Although enough. we did briefly when we when uh, our older kids were younger, we had a, a family string quartet where I had to play the violin because he had to play the cello on a oh, low man. instrument. And anyway, it was mortifying, <laughs> and I will never do it again. I will never play the violin in front of him. F- but, fair enough, but, um, but but back to the point. Yeah. But so, you know, I think what is different is that his, you know, his years are much more mercurial than mine. So some years there's great, um, wonderful work doing really well-paid things and some years less. And at least what I, you know, what I contribute is just a steady state, um, which has been helpful uh, because we do have kids uh, and we live in a city that's getting more expensive and – you know, it's it's ended up being a good sort of balance for us. Are, are you all doing all right? I mean, do you have extra money that you can put away or are you struggling? Um, we don't have extra money we can put away right now, but that is because we are on the third college tuition oh, round yeah. of four kids. Yeah. So two are all the way through. One is, uh, you know, yeah. midway through his sophomore year. Uh, we got one more down the pike, but he's only 13. So all <laughs> of our income that is not for the mortgage and, and food and the, uh, those other core things really yeah. has gone into college for a long time now. I, I hear you. Believe me, I hear you. Um, <laughs> but, but what would happen then? And I don't want to turn this dark, but it's kind of relevant because you never know in arts and you never know in this economy. What happens to you if, if the bell cord had to close down tomorrow? And you lost this job. Oh, well, wow, that would really suck, um, most of all. But, you know, I first of all, I have a set of skills that are applicable in other arenas. I've raised a lot of money. I've organized a lot of people. Um, I've built te- teams. Um, and I've overseen an institution that has grown a lot. So I have skills that I think could could move over into other areas of the economy. That being said, I am an almost 50-year-old woman, and I have heard from friends who have been in that situation that it's hard to be a, a woman who's almost 50 out in the job market right now. So, um, I, you know, while I have a lot of confidence in my skills and in the things I bring to organizations, and I think I have a track record of being good at what I do – I would not uh, 
I would not be excited about having to go out and sort of, you know, vulnerably search for a new job. That's Stephanie Silverman in Nashville, Tennessee. Next up. My name is Scott Anzalone. I'm a family physician in rural Logan, Ohio. Not familiar, are you? So it's a small town about an hour south of Columbus, uh, about 7,500 people, and it's a quiet, great place to raise children. Scott Anzalone, he's 51, has lived in Logan for 20 years. He's an Ohio native, so is his wife, and like he said, he's a family doctor. I'm the last one in private practice in our area, and actually in most of southeastern Ohio. Uh, there's a couple others, but well, I'm the last one in Logan and Hawking County. To be clear here, there is a small hospital in town, so it's not like he's the only doctor around, but he is the only one running his own practice in a renovated old building right downtown. Been built in 1867. Uh, the uh, original owner was uh, owned the stagecoach company. They went from Pomeroy to Columbus, and they lived there, and that was the stagecoach stop. Scott Anzalone fits into that same slice of the labor force, management, professional, and related occupations, as did Stephanie Silverman in Nashville. And with his business, Stagecoach Family Medicine, Dr. Anzalone ticks another box in our Types of Worker checklist. Like about 9 million other Americans, or a little more than 5% of the workforce, he's self-employed. My, my philosophy in my office has always been to provide 90% of the care that walks through my door. So my, my scope of practice is pretty wide. Um, the biggest part of my practice that's difficult is uh, offering employees um, competing uh, salaries. Uh, mm. When everybody's employed by large systems, they can offer huge benefits and, you know, all the all the per- perks and pluses of being employed, and I can't. So um, it's been tough making sure I keep staff and keep them happy. It's actually an interesting point that not only are you a primary care physician, but you're running a small business. Right, right. I, I, I'm the I'm the owner. I'm the employer. I'm I'm the physician, and I'm also the plumber sometimes. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Would, would it have been easier for you if you had just been in Columbus working for a medical group instead of out in Logan doing doing what you do? Yeah, uh, not sort of, but not really. I think when I came to town, everyone was in private practice. That's just what we did. There wasn't all this corporate medicine. Um, everyone has either getting out because of the, the cost and not being able to compete as well. But a lot of people don't want to have to deal with the business end of medicine. It would be easier in the sense that I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, hiring an employee or firing an employee or dealing with, you know, the Internet when it's down and we'd have no no medical records and those things. Yes. But I also have the flexibility to because I am the boss, if you will. I have the flexibility with my time some. I also have the flexibility to treat my patients the way I feel they should be treated, not how the corporation tells me to treat them. Back up for a minute to that whole internet thing. You are out in rural America. We hear all the time about how that part of the country, writ large, right, that slice of this country does not have internet. That's a business impact for you? Oh, it definitely is. Um, many of our part of parts of our county don't have good internet service. Actually, just today, I my own home I just got upgraded for the first time in forever because we basically had such bad service. Um, we'll see how, how much better it is. But what where I run into a problem is you know when I had paper charts, unless unless there's a fire, basically I had access to my patient records, mm-hmm. and uh, occasionally we'd have power, our power goes out. It's not uncommon for it to go out, um, and when it goes out, I could light my lanterns and open my charts and see my patients. Um, now, when the internet's down, we are dead in the water. I mean, have nothing. 
you have a second job as well, right? Uh, on the side, yeah, I work for Ohio University. Um, I'm on faculty down there. I teach medical students, um, and I also run a um, a third year uh, longitudinal integrated clerkship program. Do you do it because you want to, or because you have to? Well, I do it because I I do I love teaching. Uh, that's why that was the origin of it. I, I, I love rural rural medicine, and this program is des- I designed it to encourage our young young new physicians to go into underserved areas, either urban or rural. Um, but also, it also <laughs> allows me to have some benefits um, through the university, um, some de- some dental and optimi- oh. uh, I'm sorry, eye insurance, and um, it allows me to have get some time in the state teachers retirement system. It's not a lot. You know, my retirement is what I can save myself. And yeah. uh, this was just another little avenue that I could actually hopefully build up enough uh, in my nest egg so I can retire someday. How's it going recruiting young doctors to take up rural practice? I mean, have you asked some of the, you know, your, your best and brightest graduate, mm-hmm. have you said to him or her, hey, come on down and, and be a partner in my practice? Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I've been looking for a partner for at least three years now. And uh, I've sent letters out. I've, I, I, I hit every residency locally. We have um, a couple small rural residencies. And we just can't get anyone who wants to come to a small town. Uh, they don't want to go into private practice. They're being told they can't. Uh, they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't afford to. Uh, our, our medical students are coming out of college with or medical school with, you know, average three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars in debt. And, you know, they're afraid they're not going to be able to pay that back if they're in rural family medicine. It's a little sad. I mean, what are you going to do when, so you're, you're 51, you're going to work for another 20 mm-hmm. years plus or minus, right? What are you going to do when you retire? What's going to happen to your patients and, and their care? I don't know. And that's, that's been my dilemma at this point is, you know, I have between 3,500 to 4,000 patients. Wow. And, um, that's a lot of patients. I'm stretched. It's a lot of patients. <laughs> and um, I, I have to sleep at night. And there have been times I'm like, I, you know, I can't keep going at this pace um, and I need some help. But if I, and I've had other opportunities presented to me, but I'm like, where are my patients going to go? Um, we don't have someone to take that. And when you work in a community, a small community, I mean, you don't just punch in and punch out. You don't work 40 hours a week. It's not a, I always tell my students, it's not a career, it's a lifestyle. A couple of time zones and about 1,700 miles northwest of Logan, Ohio, you will find Boise, Idaho. So cold, I could barely open up my car door. That's where Ashley Nelson, she's 34 years old, has lived the past 14 years. How'd you wind up in Idaho? It's actually kind of funny because people ask me that all the time, and I'm actually from California, and I moved out to Idaho for hair school, actually, because my dad lived out here. Hair school was about $10,000 cheaper here Hmm. than in San Francisco. Couldn't pay my rent one month, and so uh, my dad made me. (laughs) How much does hair school cost? Um, I think right now it's like $20,000, but it was $20,000 like 14 years ago in San Francisco, and it was like ten in Boise. So... Boise it was. Ashley enrolled in cosmetology school, and then, well, then she started cutting people's hair. Uh, Were you terrified? Oh, terrified is almost an understatement for me because I'm now a recovering perfectionist, but at the time I was a perfectionist, and it was, like, so detrimental to my career in the beginning because I was so scared to mess up anyone's hair. When people say, like, oh, it's just hair, I'm like, uh but it's on your head and it's the first thing that everyone sees. <laughs> How'd you get over that? Mm, continuing to show up. Yeah. Just 
trying over and over again, thinking, honestly, God, that people kept showing up because I probably did a lot of bad haircuts and colors out there. <laughs> <laughs> and you apologize for them, I suppose. Right? Well, Boise's small, so it'd be interesting to be like at a restaurant and you look over and you're like, why does that person look familiar? And you're like, oh, man, I gave that person a bad haircut a long time ago. <laughs> Many long hours on her feet, and 14 years later, she's got a thriving business. She takes home more than $100,000 a year. She's got clients she likes, a car that's paid off, and a house she bought with her husband a couple of years ago in a neighborhood she loves. Basically, the flip side of what Neil the bartender is living. Same service economy, different lives. So so what does a typical day look like for you? I mean, what time do you show up at the salon, and, and how does that work? Um, I start between 6 and 8, but usually in the I morning? have a lot of clients. People yeah. come at 6 in the morning for a haircut? Yeah, I have a lot of clients that like that time. I even have clients like, oh, I start at 5.30 in the morning. Wow. Yeah, I actually joke that I call my C-class clients, my CFOs, CEOs, yeah. moms with like high-powered jobs that like have to just basically get in before their day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting, um, not to get all technical, but you are smack in the middle of the service economy, right? I mean, there's not much there's there's not much more that's service oriented than you know taking care of somebody's hair. Yeah, it's interesting because I, as I built my career, I watched a lot of people work. You know, the hours from you know like ten to six. Mm-hmm. Well, ten to six is when people are at work. You aren't really going to get like the type of clients that that I was looking for during those hours. But yeah, so, well, so who, who were you looking for client-wise? Uh, I guess people who can, like, value my services. I feel like my whole clientele has grown off of me just being patient. Yeah. I mean, I used to sit for 50 hours a week at a salon and sometimes make, like, oh, my gosh, like $200 in a week. Now it's like, I mean, I'm having to tell myself I can't work 14-hour days. So hmm. my days are very long, very, very long. Are, are you able to raise your prices? I mean, is it, is it that good? Is it that busy? Uh, yeah. I mean, Idaho is growing so much. So especially like where I live, um, Idaho just is like bringing in all of mm-hmm. California, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's booming. I mean, I was thinking the other day, I started this client out maybe 10 years ago. She started at like 115 when she first started coming to me, and she closes out now at 200 Dollars? Yeah. She, so so that, it, co- it cost her $115 to get a haircut, and now it costs her $200? Um, that was for a cut color back, uh-huh. like when I first started, yeah. Gotcha. Is this what you wanted to do when you were a kid? Yeah, it was, actually. I remember huh. wrapping fake perms on my grandma and telling my dad I wanted to do hair, and he told me, well, you always have a job, because... <laughs> No matter how broke people are, people will always come get their hair done because it'll make them feel good. And I think he was right because in 08, that was like in the like when I was building, yeah. and it was weird to have people handing over cash to you and being like, "Oh, this is my bill money," and you're like, "Oh, wow!" Like you just felt bad. I'm like, "Oh, you're paying my bills now." So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, there is a, a side of you uh, that has to be a, a straight-ahead business person, right? You have to keep your books. You have to crunch the numbers, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny because that's the part that I don't think anyone realizes. And so if you're really good artistically and really good with people, but you suck at that, you're going to really fail. I mean, when I was in hair school, they said 90% of the people you're going to hair school with right now will not be doing hair in five years. Wow. And, and it's just wild because now when I look back, I'm like, man, there aren't a lot of those people doing hair still. But she is making a go of it in the service economy. 
So there you have it, three of the 10 people in our reimagining of the 164 million strong U.S. labor force. We are going to keep talking to all 10 of those people, by the way, over the course of the next year. You can meet the other seven, including a bartender in Portland, Oregon, a truck driver in Kansas City, Missouri, and a convenience store employee in Loudoun County, Virginia. And you can read an explanation of how we chose them at marketplace.org slash work. This episode of the Corner Office Podcast was produced by Maria Hollenhorst and Bridget Bodner. Marketplace on the radio is produced by Nancy Fargali. Sitar Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. I'm Kai Rizdal. Another episode for you in a couple of weeks.